Hey everybody, it's Microphones of Madness. I'm Rodney, over there Steve. Hi. And today we are back hitting the books with the celebrated cases of Judge Dredd. R. L. The Law. The third. I am the law. Aren't I love you? No, we are looking at uh, celebrated cases of Judge D., also known as uh, D. Gongan. They call him Judge. His last name is Dread. If you break the law, you wind up dead. That's right. This is a translation of an 18th century Chinese detective novel by Robert Van Gulick. Hopefully I said that correctly. Um, which later spawned into a, a, a long series of, God, eight, 18 books, something like that. Um, I didn't realize that this was the only one that was source material and the rest was fan fiction. Yeah, what what happened was is uh, Gulick stumbled across uh, one of the later copies. I want to say like maybe the 47 edition of D. Gong On in a bookstore in Tokyo. Uh, read through it, decided that uh, it was interesting enough to translate for a Western audience um, and went back got a couple of older copies one from the 18th century one from the like 1903 i think and then uh ended up the main thrust of his translation was the 18th century version and then he decided to continue writing the character in more of a uh western detective story format to to, to cut back on some of the stuff that's in going on that's uh kind of hard to follow i guess there's yeah there's definitely stuff that it, I, I wouldn't say it's hard to follow it's just not um what you're used to in a detective story as a western right right so, like yeah like when you exhume a grave in in western um detective literature it's to you know Look for stuff the coroner may have missed, blah, blah, blah. And they actually do that. But also, um, they are guided by the spirit of the dead man. Yep, yep. Supernatural elements is a big thing in uh, Chinese detective literature, uh, as attested to in the foreword. Uh, <laughs> uh, also... This is the one time that I did not read the foreword. Right. Uh, it's all... Also, it's Usually a just the facts, ma'am, kind of kind of story. Like the it, only thing it focuses on are the case cases themselves. You know, we don't right. see too much of D's private life. Yes, you don't get to see D hanging out with Watson, playing violin and shooting cocaine. That's right. We do get a little bit of other interesting glimpses here and there. Um, I don't know why I, I guess because they want to set up Judge D as this like extremely moral character, we get occasional flashes to, uh, the beat cops and whatnot, uh, whinging about not getting any like, uh, coppers for their trouble. Right. Yeah. You get a little bit of insight into, um, the Chinese legal bureaucracy, um, in, in in this story and yeah you you get like that um it reminds me more of 
a Perry Mason kind of story, right? Right. Because, um, so his title is judge. Right. But he really is every court official. Right. He's, he's, he's the magistrate. He's, yeah. He's conducts investigations, uh, gathers, te- he's, he functions as prosecutor, uh, detective and the judge. Literally is judge. Yep. Tasked with upholding the law by any means necessary. And, uh, he, he, they do use some means that I wouldn't think are necessary, but it, right. it does happen. Yep. Yep. This is this is a fine example of law and order in a uh, totalitarian authoritarian society. Yes, and I think one of the things that, as a reader, uh, you have to do when reading this is remember that this isn't Sherlock Holmes. This isn't Hercule Poirot or any famous Western detective uh, or, or even Kolchak talking right. about superna- supernatural elements. This is a story uh, that takes place in a time period in a country that most of us have no idea anything about. Right, right. I mean... Because when I say China, you say communist China, communist China, communist. Right. This and is that's and, our yeah. extent of China. Oh, and they print stuff for them, right? Where they used to. Exactly. Um, however, uh, however, uh, Judge D, we you know we said this is 18th century text. However, Judge D as a character is uh, an uh, an historical figure uh, from Tang period China or Tang, I forget the correct pronunciation. Which was roughly seventh century uh, CE, right? So we're we're so, talking we're talking something that's now, uh, what? It's antiquated. Yeah, and the 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 government, the system, all of that um, is something that doesn't exist anymore. Right. Well, I mean, it's it was antiquated when the book was written. Well, yeah. Uh, however, if, you know, I, the, if the we source were... materials from the 18th century do the math, right? That's like 1,200 years. Right. Exactly. I mean, you know, this is this is that's one of the interesting things about uh, stories and fiction and stuff like that coming out of China is that you know we have fully functioning bureaucracy long before these thoughts are ever even conceived of really kind of in the West. Well, I we mean, had city had states and things we like had the that Roman empire in the West at this time. And that was pretty, pretty goddamn bureaucratic. Right. So what, well, but when we think of the West, you know, we we're thinking post Roman. Right. And, and yeah, I mean, but no, but at the time, like the Romans said, Jesus fucking Christ. Right, right. They bureaucratized themselves into two different bureaucracies. Right. And it, it, it's, and it's quite possible that they, they might have had some influence. Because, you know. That, that is true. I, mean, I really you know, like your system of government. <laughs> these, these, these civilizations didn't exist in vacuums. Right. As right. much as we want them to. There, there was, there was trade. Um, yeah, so overall, what what'd you think of it as as a uh, crime book? Uh, it was a little dry. 
a little dry, yeah. Um, you know, uh, when I read a crime book, I kind of, and this is not a mystery. This is a, you know what happened, kind of. You, well, you know the, the, the big sweeping things of right. what happened. And um, as it goes along, you, you get more of the details. Right, right. It is as, oh, go ahead. As opposed to um, what, what you start with some a crime, you have no idea what happens. And through the cleverness and um, pure spunk of, of the protagonist, you find out who did it, how they did it. Here you already know who did it. Um, and it's just a question of, of figuring out how. And it's not even really uncovering a mystery it doesn't feel like that it more feels like proving a point right right this is definitely a procedure of as the judge has to have all of his paperwork and stuff in order and things have to go in a certain logical progression you know we start with the accusation um but really to 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 talk about it we have to talk a little bit more about how the book is structured uh, the celebrated cases, it's not like three individual stories. It's three curse cases that occur in roughly the same period of time. Well, and, they, they, and they kind of interweave the narrative they're together. They're concurrent with each other. Right. Um, and as a matter of fact, um, they, in investigating one case, he ends up coming up with... Um, the next one before mm-hmm. the first one is settled and that's how it kind of goes right he, he comes across a new one and then so we jump it's more back. realistic um, than Sherlock Holmes working on one case at a time right because you know crime is all over the place and happens all the time um, it's, it's interesting how um, crime is the philosophy of crime it's not the act itself that is the offense. It's the going against the philosophy of civilization. Right. <laughs> that is the offense. Right. The, the, major, the major sin is not that you killed the guy. It's the fact that you, you know, were able, you are of a mindset to conceive of such impropriety. Right. You behaved in a manner not becoming to society. Is or your station in society that is, um, and the punishments that they deal out are that's what they're being punished for mm-hmm. or not being punished for. Uh, people who have nothing whatsoever to do with the crime except for being the landlord, right, are whipped yep. <laughs> because, because, um, they committed the crime of allowing such a thing to happen in their presence, right. It's like, oh, you're, you're a scholar. You should know better than that. Right. You teach young men. You should know better than to have. You should know what's going on with your pupils. You should know better than to have a murderer. In- That's right. You should know better than to have a murderer in your house. Lady, you're just dumb. Yes. One woman gets gets us saved from punishment because she's just plain. Yep. <laughs> It's definitely a shock to the system. Um, I mean, I could see Holmes calling somebody stupid. Right. I, I could totally see it. But I don't see him thinking that it's a moral failing. 
Right, exactly. And, and, to, and to Judge D, it's a crime. Being stupid is a crime. That's right. That's right, because you should all be well-educated enough. Not 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 educated to a, to a certain degree, but educated enough. Educated in society. In the rules of propriety. Now, D does employ some clever investigative techniques, uh, other than torture. There um, is investigative torture, though. Right. There is, there is a lot of uh, things things that we would come to know in the 70s and, and seems like uh, might, might even modern American police a little too much. Um, but yeah, Judge D absolutely has the power to uh, to instigate judicial torture yeah. uh, for for a confession uh, or or and mete out punishment for something like perjury immediately. Right. Now, not that I advocate using torture to gain information except in role playing. And even then even then it's questionable. He doesn't use torture to get someone random to confess. Right. When he applies torture, he knows beyond a shadow of a doubt that that person committed the crime, and he's just getting them to say that he doesn't randomly torture people. Right. It's not like that. Right. He doesn't pull people off the street and go, confess! He's not the Inquisition. (laughs) Right. So, So, you know, he is damn well sure. It actually becomes a plot point mm-hmm. um, because apparently uh, these these magistrates are beholden. Uh, it's two way street. They are beholden to the community that they serve. Yep. So if they are wrong, uh, they can, will suffer the punishment that would have that they're accusing someone. Correct. If that, sure. if that makes sense. So if, if, if I had killed somebody or if somebody was dead and I had been accused of it and I wasn't the perpetrator and I was tortured um, and it's found out that it wasn't me, then the magistrate would pay the penalty for that. And that would right. be whatever the, the, the penalty for killing someone. Right. Interestingly enough, uh, the magistrate also has to... Uh, Pass judgment and sentence themselves to the, <laughs> to this punishment because they are they are the law of the land in that district and and so and maybe it wasn't common among some others uh, they try to set up D himself as this kind of paragon among judges uh, whereas yeah. other judges you know take bribes and and uh, you know do disreputable things judge d uh takes his office very seriously and and the uh pursuit of justice very seriously yes and there is a there is a spot in the book where he begins to question uh his his own judgment um and writes the letter to recommend himself to be receiving a punishment uh, for murder because he he's starting to one of the suspects is starting to convince him that he possibly is torturing the wrong person. <laughs> well, I don't think he was ever really convinced that sh- that she was uh, 
not guilty. I think that she was just so damn good that he wasn't going to be able to get a confession out of her. And that's the key in the system is getting that confession. Yep. Yep. And she wasn't she wasn't going to do it. Mm-hmm. Uh, she, she had been tortured twice. So you know he already knew she did it because he freaking tortured her. Um, but she wasn't crap. Well, you read the book, find yep. out. Um, so that's why he wrote that that letter because she brought it up. She was like, I can't believe you're torturing me. I'm an innocent person. Uh, I know the law. You're, you have to suffer the penalty when I'm proven innocent. So that's why he did it. I mean, it was as much as CYA as uh, as anything else right because he is such a you know upstanding magistrate mm-hmm. you know he, he wasn't going to like try and weasel his way out of that right now that being said he went about his business um and not only the business of proving this person guilty but uh he was also investigating two two other uh crimes at the time. that's right that's right he he does continue his job whereas most people would go on like administrative leave yeah i mean if that was here you <laughs> mcclanagan turning your gun in your badge right right with judge d it's uh well you know i'm probably gonna get tortured in the next couple of months here yeah uh shit i gotta clear my docket <laughs> justice waits for no one so yeah it's but uh, D is not alone in, in his quest. He he has his uh, his goon squad. He has his pod, uh, highwaymen. Yep, he has uh, one old one guy who is like a valet for his family. So he has yeah. like an Alfred uh, Sergeant Hong. Uh, then he has uh, Ma Jung. Hong yep, he has uh, Ma Jung, who was a uh, a ban- uh, a thief. That's what he was a thief, right? And then uh, there, there are two other characters who tried Chow to Man yep, and Chow Tai, yep, and they tried to rob him on his way to the job, <laughs> and yeah. uh, apparently Judge D is not without his own uh, physical skills. Uh, right? They they never really talk about it because they talk about his his. his thing is his wisdom and his intelligence uh but his acumen but he is also uh very capable physically as well since he was able to hold off these two extremely skilled highwaymen uh without injuring them or hurting them at all now now these highwaymen to be fair aren't uh cutthroat thieves and bandits they are more robin hoodish right uh, what, what were they called? The Green Brotherhood or something? Yeah, the Brotherhood of the Green Forest. Uh, they're they're yeah. members of the Jianghu. Right. So they were basically uh, people who were living by their wits, but they were it was more uh, they were doing it more to uh, to help them and, and their people survive as opposed to being flat out pirates. Right. Ma, on the other hand, is the fucking hardcore pirate killer, and he's the one that. Uh, gets sent on to do some of the really dangerous yeah he, he gets the shit work um yeah there's he's the guy who has to do like the real physical stuff you gotta restrain this guy um there's he gets in a quite a few fights over the course of the book mm-hmm. 
And, you know, he does have superior boxing skills. Yes. And wrestling. He's quite good at it, too. Uh, I like the one scene where he walks in, he's carrying the bales of silk. Mm-hmm. And the guys, like, come in, like, what are you doing coming in here? And he just kicks them in the balls. Yeah. <laughs> he knew that he wouldn't have, he didn't have the right angle to really put a lot of force in the blow, but it was the ball, so it was going to hurt. Right. <laughs> and the guy's momentum was going to Yeah, he just, like, basically <laughs> stuck his foot out, and the guy walked yeah. right into it. Yeah. You know, Ma Jung also has to uh, pretend to be a thief. We're sending you undercover is what you do best. And he does. He's, he can strip down to his fucking underwear and break into people's houses. Tension, little misdirection up on a rooftop, double back. Yep. Yeah, I mean, he, he, he knows his business. He knows how to not get caught. He's like the entirety of the Baker Street Irregulars in one man. Um. Yeah, and that's that's the other interesting thing is that, you know, and, and Hung is, he's just like super chill. He's he's good at like logistics and stuff and, and making sure that all the pieces are where they want, are where they need to be. Mm-hmm. But he's also the, the man of the people. Like Judge D being where he is in the bureaucracy can't really be seen uh, carousing with in that unofficial capacity. No, he can't. As a matter of fact, when he when he goes out, because he does go out and do some of the direct research himself, mm-hmm. but he has to be disguised to do it. Uh, and people realize that the doctor that they berated for, for not having a license for selling their their uh, their patent medicines in the town square uh, happened to be the the magistrate, and they see him with in his official capacity, and they're immediately down on the ground. I'm so sorry. I treated you like trash. <laughs> <laughs> but the best part of that disguise, though, is is that you know, you know unlike Sherlock Holmes, like I'm going to pretend to be an itinerant steel worker or something like that, right? And he just like puts on the clothes and wipes some shit on his face. Right. You know, Judge D dresses up as an itinerant doctor. And understands that to sell the disguise, he actually has to do like doctor stuff. Yep. So he so so to sell it, he basically sets up a small practice on a street corner, <laughs> complete with medicines and stuff like that, because he had to study this shit uh, as part of his training. But you know, it's like that's his thing. He's like, uh, yeah. But he's also, you know, like most detectives in fiction, he's he's very observant. He has a lot of the hallmarks of the great detectives of fiction. He's he's observant. Uh, he's able to make keen deductions. So in some ways, he's got Sherlock Holmes elements. Um, yeah, well, and he's, um, I guess he's a good enough character that there's been a number of non-canny. Yep. I believe he's a fairly popular character he's kind of like a Wyatt Earp kind of character yeah you know lawman from a nearly forgotten time so and I've actually I've watched a couple of those movies they're pretty fun yeah uh which one did you watch the the Phantom Flame and uh yeah I think is that the one with the dragon yeah that's the one with the dragon that's the one that uh kind of follows a little bit of the celebrated cases yeah I watched them never having a good it was on Netflix a while back. Yep, yep. They had uh, 
two of th- two of the three. The final, the last one. There, I think there's one more. There's a fourth one, but the last I one I saw was the Four Heavenly Kings. I think there's one on um, on Haya. Yeah, Four Heavenly Kings is on Haya. Four Heavenly Kings has probably the most batshit insane climax of anything. <laughs> That's hilarious. Yeah, and, then, and these movies have absolutely nothing to do with books. Well, I guess you said that it does, but from what I understand, the, the supernatural um, elements and the wire work elements were amped up for for the films, where in here it's a little... Right, yeah. Uh, so in terms of the supernatural elements, it's not completely off-putting. No. So um, it's very... Uh, it's appropriate. I guess. Yeah, yeah. Um, very. Uh, yeah, the second case of B. Hassoon uh, is very uh, reminiscent of kind of like that Jane Austen kind of uh, gothic element in her stories. Right. Well, if you look at it this way, like uh, in Sherlock Holmes, you have him solving cases using um, phrenology, right? Right. Which is obviously a pseudoscience. At the time, people didn't know it was bullshit. So, you know, they used, he, Doyle incorporated it into his stories. Right. Right. It's kind of the same thing. It was, it was more, it was more considered to be like a cutting edge sort of thing. Yeah. So, so it's, it's kind of the same principle. Yes. Do ghosts and dreams help solve murders in real life? No. But in, you know, in fiction, especially fiction coming from a culture that believed in ghosts and in the prophecy of dreams, of course, it's going to be incorporated into uh, these these tales. So it, it doesn't bother me as much as uh, it was made out to bother Western readers. Okay, maybe I did read <laughs> They, uh, the dream sequence... And the poem he sees in his dream, I, I found to be like really interesting. Uh, how the the verse in the book of divination, the, the I guess the I Ching that he looked up uh, while he was in temple meditating, and then the dream he had subsequently in the verse on the tea house wall. How uh, yeah. both of those like actually dis- you know how in some mysteries like everything is laid out in the kind mm-hmm. of a form of a riddle and everything's like right in front of you the whole time. Mm-hmm. Uh, kind of like knives out, I guess. Never, never saw it. Never but saw it. Like Agatha Christie. Yeah. Like an Agatha Christie thing. Like if you're observant, you see the whole thing. Mm-hmm. Um, that's how, that's kind of how the, the dream interpretation was, was meted out. And, you know, they had to figure out, and it wasn't really them, you know, discovering the truth and then interpreting the dream to fit the truth. They were actually getting their leads from the dream and they turned out to be like completely accurate. Right. <laughs> Except for one, because they weren't really sure of, of, wasn't sure because there wasn't anywhere in the area with that name. Right. Until they come to find out that it wasn't in that area or the name had been changed. Right. Right. The, the name that they were given by um, the witness was a nickname. Yep. That no one had ever. Right. Right. And even that was. Old Greybeard. 
And that was uh, that even that was misinterpreted because it wasn't turn up village. Yeah, yeah. So here's the thing, I'm wondering because I mean, so turn up and turn up in English. Yes. What do you think you had to go through to to figure like that out in Chinese or when he was reading the original text? Because there's no way in hell that the Chinese have a similar situation with the similarities between that word and that phrase. Right, right, right. Right, and I, I, I really enjoyed how it was the half-deaf constable. Right. You know, he's like, turn up, village. Turn ups, yes, I have a lot of them in my garden. They're really good. You should try some. And everybody's like, shut up, you stupid deaf old man. And ju- But Judge D, because he's sharp, it's got that acumen, he's like, wait a minute. Right. Yes, they're very good. I should bring you some. No, 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 no. Tell me more about him. Oh, and, and he t- goes into this like long, protracted story about how the turnips in his garden, how he came into possession of the turnips in his garden. And it's like, boom, that's the clue that cracks his whole fucking case open. That's the place. So, I, yeah, I'm just wondering what the original words and wordplay was. Yeah, I, I wordplay was. So I think that was probably in there i can't tell you exactly but i bet it was a lot better than turn up and turn up right right it could even be just like the characters were similar yep and maybe the character for turn up you know shares um with something else and that's what they used yeah or pronounce a word using this character as opposed to that character you know there's all sorts of Mm -hmm. yep eight winds can't move you but one fart sends you across the river Sure. <laughs> oh, that's an old uh, that's an old Zen story. Uh, a scholar on one side of the river writes a letter uh, or a poem and sends it to a famous monk who lives on the other side. And you know, and it's just it's pretty pretentious poem. You know, eight winds can't move me. I am completely at peace. Blah blah blah. And the monk just writes fart on the on the poem and sends it back to him and uh the guys like get so pissed off he jumps in a boat rows across the river uh comes to the door and on the door is nailed a poem that that's like four winds can't move you but one fart can send you across the river (laughs) (laughs) so so yeah i I imagine turn up village and turnip village uh is kind of like humorous play on words yeah you you actually get a lot of that in a manga and apparently you know it gets translated and gets lost in translation lost and you know there's like you know there'll there'll be a a note turned to the back of the book and explains it but it's like it's not funny in english it's not clever in english right japanese yeah it's great it's hilarious (laughs) haha but you know unfortunately I don't have Japanese as a second language. So. Right, exactly. Exactly. Yeah, so Even I'm, if you had Japanese as a second language, there's probably some of the cultural aspects to the humor that you wouldn't see. And it's po- quite possible that that whole sequence, rather than being the turning point in that case, was also in a very elaborate joke right? placed right, into right. the book. Because we know... Uh, from our viewings of films, uh, reading through uh, two swordmasters, that uh, jokes are you know quite common 
you know, wordplay, you know, insult comedy is is, is particularly uh, she comes through a lot. I mean, these guys insult each other all the time. You dog's head. Don Rickles is alive and well. Seventh century China. Yeah, triumph the insult dog. That sort of thing. Um, yeah, so if you're in the mood for some detective fiction and, and you have interest in how other cultures uh, do it, and it's a really interesting look inside of the Tang period uh, justice system. I think that is almost as um, valuable to the reader as the actual plot of the story is it's it's interesting it's just because it's so fucking different <laughs> right and remember in our initial discussion um the other day i went back through and double checked like the following periods of time and how and uh in the Qing period the punishments were exactly the same the five the five blows meted out as punishment are exactly the same ones that d uses so why don't you tell everyone what the five blows? Uh, the hard bamboo, the soft bamboo, and I forget the other two, the other three. <laughs> but we see the hard bamboo and the soft bamboo a lot. The soft yes, rattan and the hard bamboo. Yeah, the basic torture. And to tell you the truth, I would rather take the fucking hard bamboo over the soft rattan. I, I'm thinking of uh, Starship Troopers. When um, when he gives them the the bit of leather, the rod, mm-hmm. I love the sun. It helps. I know. <laughs> yep. Then he takes off his shirt and his fucking body's all covered with scars too. Yeah. There's a lot of beatings happening in the uh, colonial marines or yep. whatever the the, inf- the infantry. The yeah, colonial I, marines I, is, is alien. I, I suppose if also you know you should it should be. Uh, mentioned that uh, some of the depictions of the torture can be uh, quite violent uh, and very descriptive, as are this, the execution of the criminals, uh, yes. is quite graphic. So if uh, you do suffer from any type of trauma from uh, abuse or violence, that, yeah, be warned, oh. that, that's very specific. Right, and it's sexist AF. Oh, yeah. Oh, God, yes. Because, you know... The young woman is the one tortured the most. Yes, it was all her fault. Yep. Um, yeah, it, it is interesting that normally in a detective novel, once the mystery is solved, that's that's it. It's over. Damien Mall, Watson, let's go get me some cocaine. That's right. <laughs> let's go here. Sh- let's go snort an ounce. Uh, here, uh, they. They follow through on the swing. Yep. Uh, and you, you get you get the sentencing part of the trial and the meeting out of the punishment part of. Yep. And you don't really get that a lot. Well, that's because our detectives in Western fiction, that's just their only job is detecting. Right. So this is definitely SVU dynasty. And there you have it, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, Celebrated Cases of Judge D by Robert Van... The D Gong On. Get it wherever you purchase books. I'm not going to put a link in the episode because this book is pretty common. You can get it anywhere. 
you can get it from Amazon. You can get it from Apple. You can get it from a local bookstore. Shit, I even looked at There's an Audible version of it. Mm-hmm. Right. I've had my copy for probably about a decade or so. Yeah, it's... it's yeah, it was nine ninety five Dover Publications. There you go. And you, for nine ninety five, it's it. It's worth nine ninety five for an almost three hundred page book. Yeah, and, and the next time you happen to be committing crimes in seventh century China, just remember to keep thirty luck points. Absolutely. Absolutely.